If you have your Bible tonight, I wish you would open it to the book of Philippians. And in chapter number four is where we'll be studying tonight. We're working our way through this little letter that Paul wrote from a Roman prison. If this is your first Wednesday night with us, um, I was going to say you hadn't missed anything, but I hope that's not true because that would mean the other sermons hadn't been good. You have missed something, but these sermons are standalone sermons, and so you don't have to know what was preached and taught last time to get the full benefit out of the message tonight. And I think that's very important when you're teaching through a book to do it that way. Now, in chapter number four, we're going to be looking tonight at the first three verses. And I must say this, I don't think I have ever preached on this particular passage of Scripture. If I have, it, did not, it must not have been very good because I don't even remember it. It's a very little-known passage of Scripture. Most of us, if we read through our Bible, we'll read through this once a year, but normally we don't even stop to pause and think about it. It's about, Paul is writing about two ladies who were in the Philippian church who didn't get along, or at least they weren't getting along when he wrote this. They were having a disagreement about something. And so Paul is, in these verses, encouraging these ladies to put down their differences and to come together and to uh, put their disagreement behind them so that they could move on and have a better witness for the Lord. And so tonight, I have entitled our Bible study, Do We Have to Agree on Everything? That's the question. Do we have to agree on everything? How many of you would say we need to agree on everything? Raise your hand. How many of you would say we don't have to agree on everything? See, we can't even agree on that. we got people voting both ways. But most of you said we don't have to agree on everything, and indeed we don't. And it's not realistic to think that we would. But let's begin reading Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Literally, stand firm. Paul is saying, Stay, to your, stay with your faith. Keep trusting the Lord. Don't let circumstances throw you off course. And then in verse 2, these two ladies, I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women. So he's writing to somebody this phrase, true companion, In the Greek, that actually might have been the name of a person in Philippi, or it may have just been a person that was they understood that that Paul was addressing them. I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, verse 2 is our key verse. Now, let me read you that verse from the New Living Translation. Paul said, now I appeal to Judea and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And so they had a disagreement of some kind, and Paul is saying, settle the disagreement. It is damaging your witness for Christ. Again, in the New King James and in most of the other translations, we have this phrase, be of the same mind, but notice what it says next. In the Lord. He didn't say, be of the same mind, period. He, didn't assa- he did not say, agree on everything. He says, be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, what do we know about these ladies? Well, other than that they were members of this church, 
And other than they were having a disagreement, we don't know very much at all about them. We don't even know what the disagreement was about. We're left to wonder and speculate. wonder what it was with these two ladies. Uh, we just don't know. Maybe they're, they had kids who had married each other. And they didn't like how the kids were raising the grandkids. I'm just guessing that. I don't know. Maybe there was some, some other personal. It had nothing to do with God or, or the Bible or theology or anything. It's just that these two ladies had a disagreement over something. And it was a personal disagreement. Maybe, maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was a cultural disagreement. Maybe it was a political disagreement. Maybe something was happening in this region of the world at this time. And they just looked at it differently. And as a result of that, they had this disagreement. Now, you don't have to think very hard to know that this can happen even amongst Christian people. I mean, think about in the United States, just in the last few years, how many things have happened that even Christian people have looked at it and disagreed on it. And uh, this just happens. I even think back when COVID started. When, when COVID first started, there was disagreement about COVID itself. What, what is this? Is, this? is this just something that's being politically spun? And we saw that it was spun in all kind of different angles before it got over with. But when, when, when that first started, th- there was that discussion. And then they came out, you should wear a mask. And then so there were disagreements. Should we wear a mask or should we not wear a mask? These doctors said you should wear a mask, and others said, no, you shouldn't wear a mask. And then the vaccines. Should you get a vaccine or should you not get a vaccine? And then the mandates on both of those. And the, So I'm saying Christian people are looking at the exact same issue, and they're looking at the same issue, and yet they're not always coming to the exact same conclusion on that issue, not to mention all the other things that have happened in our country just in the last few years. It's been interesting to me to watch people who equally love God, who equally believe in the Bible, and we see these things unfolding before our very eyes, and uh, people are just looking at these things completely and totally from a different perspective. And so it could could have been something like that. It could have been a theological disagreement. Maybe there was something about God. Maybe there was something about the Christian faith and how to live the Christian life. And they, had, they, they just were in disagreement about this. For example, we read in Romans chapter 14 about what Paul described as disputable matters. Disputable matters. And so by disputable matters, he meant good people look at the same issue, even a theological issue, and they look at it in a different way. In Romans chapter 14, we read about a group of people who became convinced that they should not eat meat. And so this group of people became vegetarians, largely because that they knew that much of the meat in that day had been offered up to these false gods. And so many of the Jewish people, it made their conscience feel guilty to eat meat that had been offered to these gods and these idols. And so they just chose not, and they became vegetarians. And there were others who said, well, the meat shouldn't have been offered up to the idols. That wasn't the right thing to do. But what is an idol anyway? An idol is not even real. And so they were eating the meat. And so you had one group of of Christians who were eating meat, another group of Christians who were vegetarians. And Paul is saying, whichever side you come down on, it's okay. But don't 
let your conviction on that cause you to be at odds with somebody who sees it differently. In that same chapter, Paul talked and said, some of you think that you should honor one day of the week above another day. Certainly for the Jews, it would have been the Sabbath. For Christians, it would be Sunday. And Paul said, but I've also noticed there are other Christians who say that all days are the same. In other words, not only did God make the Sabbath, and not only did God make Sunday, Resurrection Day, the Lord's Day, but God made Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, so you shouldn't uh, honor one day above another day. And the other said, no, but you should honor. This is the Lord's Day, or this is the, the day of rest, and you should. And Paul is saying, I hear both arguments. I see both sides, but these are disputable matters. These are things you, you, you should be able, as Christians, to look at an issue like that, think it through with the mind God gave you and with your conscience to make the decision that is right for you, and yet to realize everybody might not agree with that decision. I can remember back in the early 1990s, the Southern Baptist Convention voted to boycott Disney World. Why? Because Disney World was setting aside a day in June that they were promoting the gay lifestyle. And so Southern Baptists said, we should boycott Disney World. We should not go there. We should make a stand. Well, there were many who felt that was the right thing to do. But there were others who felt like that was not the right thing to do. In other words, they felt like certainly we're against homosexuality. We're against what Disney is doing there. But we don't think as Christians, that we should just pull ourselves out. In other words, the logic on the other side was, how can we be salt and light if we're not in the world? And so I can remember even in seminary hearing that debated both ways. Interestingly, since that time, Southern Baptists have withdrawn the ban on Disney, and yet Disney has taken their promotion of homosexuality to another level. It's odd that if, if, if the boycott was right, why, in other words, why would you lift it if nothing has changed? Yeah, but I'm saying, they, it, I think those who led in that would say, we were trying to send out a statement. We were trying to, to send out a message and to make a statement. But I'm saying on that particular issue, you should be able to look at that one way, and somebody else might look at that another way. Your conscience says this. Their conscience says that. Well, you know, you should be able to, to disagree on that, and that should not come between you. I can remember having a discussion with a fellow minister years ago about R-rated movies, and we were talking about, about these, these movies, and he said, John, I bet you did not watch Saving Private Ryan because it was R-rated. I said, that's right, I didn't watch it. And he said, well, I did. And I said, well, shame on you. Not really, but that we were teasing. And he said, but I bet you did watch Titanic because it was rated PG-13. I said, I did. He said, but the interesting thing about that is Titanic had nudity in it and Saving Private Ryan didn't. The only reason Saving Private Ryan was rated R was because it was war and, and the violence, and that's what got it. And, this, and what he was saying to me, his opinion is you shouldn't make a decision over which movie to watch by so much necessarily what is rated, you make the decision based on what's the con what is it that you're going to be seeing in 
that movie. And I said to him, I had to step out, I, I, and this is a true statement. He didn't think it was true. I said, actually, I had to step out and go to the restroom during that bad scene in Titanic. I missed that. And uh, I don't think I won my argument with him but, but over that. But it's interesting. So you can take these views, and we have to have some guidelines for why we do this or why we don't do that. And yet, we have to realize that another person who loves God just as much as we love God can look at the exact same issue and they can say, I disagree. I look at it differently. I don't think that's right. You and I are not together on that. And so this is what was happening with these two ladies, ladies, Judea and Syntica. There was something going on, whether it was personal, cultural, political, or theological. There was something going on, and because they couldn't agree on it, it was causing a problem in the church. You say, John, does, do these things happen today in churches? Yes. Yes, they do. And this is why we have said for decades at First Baptist, uh, long before much of the stuff we're seeing happening now, long before there was a pandemic, long before so much of this political uh, total anima, we have said for decades and for decades, we want to be a Jesus church. We want Jesus to be lifted up. We want Jesus to be the focus. We want to keep the main person the main person, and that's Jesus. And so we would rather unite the people around Jesus. But can this type of stuff happen? Yes, it can. For example, theologically. There are some Christians, and I'm in this group, who believe in the rapture of the church. I think most of us here tonight would believe in that. That is, that at any moment, there could be a trumpet sound from heaven, the shout of an archangel and the voice of God, and we'd go straight up to heaven and we'd be with God in the next five seconds. The rapture. I, the Bible te- I believe the Bible teaches that in 1 Thessalonians 4. Do you know... Most every professor that I ever had teaching me the Bible at, sem- at college and seminary did not believe in the rapture. They didn't believe it. They, they ju- that's not how they read the end time events as presented in Revelation and Daniel. and uh, they, did, they did not believe in the rapture. Now, it's easy for those of us who do believe in the rapture to li- listen to these people who don't believe in the rapture. And we say, well, they're just a liberal. They're not liberal. They're not liberal at all. I personally think they're wrong on that issue, but they're not liberal. They believe what they believe based on their understanding of the Bible. Now, again, I don't agree with that. I think that's wrong. I believe that there is a rapture. But whether one believes in the rapture or not, friend, that is not the test of fellowship. The test of fellowship is not what you believe about vaccines, masks, or the rapture. The test of fellowship is what you believe about Jesus. Jesus is the test. But if, if it's not Jesus, any of these other things could just cause people's relationships and friendships to completely and totally to fall apart. And so Paul is saying to these two ladies, whatever it is that caused this problem, this disagreement, you need to come together and you need to, uh, you need to put this beside. He's saying to them, you may never agree on that issue. Or on those issues, but agree in the Lord. This afternoon, I read a quote by a Bible scholar named William McDonald. It's one of the best quotes I'd ever read. He said this, It is impossible for us to be united in all things in daily life. But as far as the things of the Lord are concerned, 
it is possible for us, now listen to this, to submerge our petty personal differences in order that the Lord may be magnified and his work advanced. To submerge, notice how he said that, our petty personal differences, to submerge them, to be done away with them. Now, all of that to lead me to these two statements I want to make tonight. As I have thought today about these two ladies, Judea and Syntyche, what in the world must they have been upset with each other about? What was it they couldn't agree on? Well, I have two statements tonight. Number one, it is impossible for us to agree on everything. It's impossible. It is not possible for two human beings to agree on everything. My parents in, in, in August had been married for 59 years. And I've heard my mother say so many times something that I think is so good and I think it is so right. She says, you know, in marriage... If two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. Now, you think about that. There's a lot of things they don't agree on, a ton of things they don't agree on. They married 59 years. But they agree on the main things. They agree on the things that matter. Now, listen to this statement again. It's in your outline tonight. It is impossible. It is absolutely impossible for us to agree on everything. If you and I got in a car tomorrow, if I picked you up tomorrow, And I said, I'm going to pick you up in the morning at 9 o'clock, and we're going to drive to Dallas, and I know a great place to eat dinner, and I'll buy the dinner. Now, we're using our imagination now. I'm buying the gas and the dinner. And then I'll drive you back home, and I'll have you home tomorrow night by 8 o'clock. And on the way up there, and while we're having dinner, and on the way back, I've made a list of 30 or 40 topics, political topics, cultural topics, Theological topics, financial topics, your philosophy on money, how to to make it, how to save it, how to spend it, how to invest it. We're going to talk about all of it. We're going to talk about a lot of topics, and I want you to make a list of 30 or 40 of your topics that you think might kind of be hot-button, controversial topics. And for the whole day tomorrow, we're going to discuss these topics. Now, here's what I know. If I, in that conversation, if I'm honest with you, and if you're honest with me, and we, we both feel the freedom on every subject to say how we really feel. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If you have a friend where you can spill the beans and tell them what you really think, and then let them tell you what they really think, and neither one of you gets mad at each other, you have a friend. I mean, in most of our relationships, you can't even do that. You get in a conversation, and they tell you what they think, and you say, you know, that, that's interesting. Or I, I hear what you're saying. I hear where you're coming from. But you're thinking to yourself, where did you come up with? How do you, how? But if you have a friend that you can speak freely, you don't even have to agree, but they're not going to, to judge you or they're not going to tell you you're crazy. They're just listening to you. I'm telling you, you have a friend. But I'm saying in that conversation, to Dallas and back, I can assure you, that there would be several issues that we don't agree on. And I don't even know who you are in some cases and what the issues would be. But I'm saying there's no way that two people could be together all day, and unless it's just a very unusual situation, and agree on everything. But the beauty of relationships is that you should be able to say, I hear where you're coming from. I see what you're saying. I look at it a little bit differently. Here's why I believe what I believe. 
And, uh, you know, and they say, I see what you're saying. I look at it differently, but I see what you're coming from. Now let's talk about the next issue. If you have a friend that you can talk to like that and you don't feel the pressure, oh, don't say anything that would offend them. Don't say anything that would make them mad. Well, I'm telling you, you have a friend. You better be thankful for that. Now, in my notes, I wrote this. See, see if you agree with this statement. If we can agree that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and if we can agree on the clear teachings of Scripture, then we can come together and we can be all right. If we can agree on that. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 15, some of the people, some of the Jewish people were saying they had become Christians, but they were coming out of Judaism, and they were saying, they were teaching, in order for a person to really be saved, they have to be, a man has to be circumcised, and then they have to keep the law of Moses. Yes, we believe in Christ, and yes, we receive Christ by faith, and we repent of our sins, and so on, but in order to really be saved, you must be circumcised. And it was causing a dispute. And so in Acts chapter 15, we read that they had a conference in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem conference, and they discussed this, and they debated this, and they were prayerful about this, and the Holy Spirit was leading them, and they finally came to this conclusion. In order to be saved, you do not have to be circumcised. You only have to trust Jesus Christ. But they, we do believe that in that culture, this would be different today, but they were saying, we do believe that you shouldn't eat meat offered to idols because if you eat it, even with a clear conscience, it could cause somebody to do it and they don't really think it's right and they would violate their conscience. So the principle at that time on that issue was keep the weaker brother in mind. Don't do anything that might make your brother stumble. And then they also said, also we should abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, that's clear. So it's not just believing that Jesus saves. That's the main thing. That's the beginning point. But it is also believing the clear teachings of Scripture. I mean, I think we would all agree today that sexual immorality of any form is wrong. Amen? Well, so a person can't just say, well, I believe in that Jesus saves. And I also believe that since Jesus saves, how I live my life doesn't matter. So fornication's okay, adultery's okay, homosexuality's okay, all this stuff is okay. None of that matters because I believe Jesus saves. No, that's not, when, when, when Paul is writing to these ladies, he's saying be of the same mind in the Lord first. Yes, that Jesus saves. And then the clear teachings of Scripture. But we need to remember there are some things, even in Scripture, that fall under the category of a disputable matter. Paul said that in Romans chapter 14. And he's saying, don't let these disputable matters rip you apart. So number one, it's impossible for us to agree on everything. Can we agree on that? Say amen. All right, we agreed on that. Number two, it is possible for us to agree to disagree and still love one another. Now, I want to say that again. It is possible for us to agree to disagree and still love each other. If you have a friend, a family member, a co-worker, a neighbor, anybody with whom you can speak freely and with whom you can agree to disagree, and when that conversation is over, you're still friends 
and you still love each other. You better go home tonight and thank God for that friend. It's possible. I, I went, in fact, today when I was working on this sermon, I thought the only thing I wish is that it was not Wednesday night. I wish it was Sunday morning because this sermon needs to be preached to more people. Because this is what's happening in our country. And this is what's happening in many churches. It's that the wheels are coming off because people don't understand this principle. They don't understand what Paul was saying to Judea and to Seneca when he said, be of the same mind in the Lord, not to agree on everything. No. But to put away petty personal preferences and come together in your faith in Jesus and in your agreement on the clear teachings of scripture that the bible is, is is it says what it says and it means what it says and that we can agree to disagree on some of these other things i mean some of the things that have ripped relationships apart certainly have ripped our country apart and in some cases ripped churches apart are in no way biblical issues there's nothing biblical about the issue it's just an issue and there are two sides to it but I'm saying because people don't just step back and, and agree to disagree and say we're going to love each other. We may not see that okay. We don't have to come together on that. We do not have to agree on everything. This is not the, I will say this, clearly this is not the best sermon I've ever preached. But I'll tell you this, this may be the most timely sermon that I've preached in a long time. Because this is where we live. And this is what is happening. And one of the things that I love about taking a book like Philippians and just preaching through it. Although I don't do every sermon like that and neither does my dad. And not, I mean, we do it a lot and we do other things too. But one good thing about this approach is that it causes you to deal with passages that you wouldn't deal with any other way. If I weren't preaching through Philippians, I wouldn't have woken up this morning and said, I want to preach about Judea and Syntyche. There's no way in the world. Shows you the power of the Word of God. Shows you the relevance of the Word of God. That we are having the same problem in the 21st century that these ladies in Philippi were having in the 1st century. And I love how the New Living Translation says that I appeal to you ladies, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And even if you can't agree on the issue, agree to disagree and disagree agreeably and disagree like Christians and disagree with grace and with class and with dignity and with love. And with tenderness and with kindness, just agree to disagree. You know what? If you could adopt, if we could adopt the agree to disagree philosophy and on, on, on disputable matters. I'm not talking about on the atonement or salvation or the clear teachings of Scripture, but on these other issues. If we could just say, you know what? We can agree to disagree. I'll tell you what it would do. It would be like taking the top. You're cooking some beans or something on the stove there, and it begins to boil up, and you just take the top off and let the steam out. You just take the pressure out of the relationship. We don't have to agree. We don't have to agree to be together, and we don't have to agree to get Along. Now, on your outline tonight, I printed for you a quote because I think this quote, as well as any quote I know, sums up what I've been trying to say here for the last 25 minutes or so. And it's interesting, this quote has been attributed to Augustine. Some say he originated this quote. Other people say John Wesley originated this quote, founder of the Methodist Church. Some say, no, it was some other theologian. I learned today that most likely 
It originated with a German Lutheran theologian of the 17th century. Not a well-known man at all. His name was Rubertus Meldinius. And in his world, in his day, they were facing a disputable matter. Not the atonement, not the clear teachings of Scripture, but they were going through something else. And he came up with this little saying that is one of the most well-known sayings in all of church history. So we're going to give him credit for that tonight, but it is, it's so good, I know it came from God. And here it is, in essentials, unity. Unity, the essentials, the atonement, the Bible. You see, if a man says, I don't believe in the rapture, I believe that the second coming of Christ is not two events with the rapture part A and the second coming part B. I just believe the second coming of Christ is one event that will happen after the tribulation. That doesn't mean that man's a liberal. It just means he interprets eschatological issues from Scripture differently. A liberal is somebody who says, I believe the Bible has errors in it. A liberal is somebody who says, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe the Bible contains the Word of God. Now you don't know what, what part is the Word of God and what part is not. That's a liberal. A liberal is somebody who says, I don't believe Adam and Eve were real people. I believe that's just a made-up story to make a point. There was no Noah. There was no flood. There was no ark. God's telling these stories to make a point. It didn't really happen, but the truth is there, and we learn the lesson, and it benefits us. But I don't believe, and I don't believe that Jonah was really swallowed by a whale. God's telling a story there to make a point that he gives a second chance, but it's not literal, and it's not true. Now, folks, that's a liberal. A liberal is somebody who says, well, I don't believe that Jesus really died on the cross. A liberal is somebody who says, I don't believe a person is really saved by trusting in Christ. I believe a person is saved by doing good deeds, being kind to their neighbor, being charitable. I believe in the social gospel. Well, I believe the gospel has social ramifications, but friend, I don't believe in the social gospel in that sense. There is only one gospel, and that is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again, and that if we will trust him, he will save us. That is the gospel. It has social implications and ramifications, but we're not saved by doing good. We do good because we're saved. But a person who says stuff like that, that's a liberal. A person who says, I don't believe that there's going to be a rapture. I don't think the second coming is a, is a two-pronged event. I think it's just one thing. Again, I think they're wrong. I believe there is a rapture. But that doesn't make that person a liberal. In essentials, a person who believes that but who says, I believe in the blood atonement. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, friend, we could have dinner together at the same table. In essentials, unity, we must be together on those main points. In non-essentials, liberty. Give him the freedom to believe what he wants to believe. If he doesn't believe the way you believe on every issue, just give them, give them liberty. Give them freedom in non-essentials. Liberty. We agree to disagree. And then in all things, love. Let me ask you. Over the course of the last few years in our own country, how would America be different today if we adopted that principle right there? In essentials, unity. We've got to be together on Scripture, on Jesus. We've got to be together on that. These are the essentials. These are the foundations of our faith. We can't back off of that. In non-essentials, liberty. We can agree to disagree. But in all things, whether we agree or disagree, love. 
I do believe personally what I read, from what I read today that this Rubertus Meldenius probably originated that phrase. But I believe John Wesley used it. Augustine lived centuries before. Maybe he said something similar to that. And this Meldenius just cleaned it up a little bit. But it is a wonderful way to live life. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. You say, John, can you give us any more illustrations about the non-essentials? Yes, I can. And we're seeing it. It has, it has reemerged. I don't think it would affect very many of us here tonight as far as being a combative issue. But theologically, this whole idea of Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism, TULIP, I preached on it months ago. I'm thinking about writing a book on it. Total depravity, unconditioned election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. I told you what I believe when I preached that sermon. But I have friends on both sides of that. And I'm reading this book tonight, or not tonight, but over the last little bit of time on John Wesley called Crossing the Divide. I have to tell this story quickly now because of the time. That, that clock, you know, when we get to heaven, there won't be a clock. And I know what you're thinking. That's okay because when we get to heaven, there won't be preaching. So who needs a clock? So we have to have one to offset the other, and I get it. But when I was reading this, I learned some things I didn't know. You know, John Wesley and Charles Wesley were brothers in the 1700s. They led in the great revival that took place in England at that time. I'll come back later and share, perhaps, maybe I will. John Wesley was saved on Pentecost Sunday. I believe it was May the 21st, 1738. And on the Wednesday, three days later, May the 24th, 1738, John Wesley was saved. These guys had tried to make themselves right with God by preaching and coming to America and doing missionary work. They were utter failures. And they finally learned that salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. I've always thought it was interesting those guys, got, their brothers got saved on the same week. They had a friend named George Whitfield. These three guys were the men in England in the 1700s. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield. George Whitfield, of the three, was the greatest preacher. He had a voice that I would give anything to have. He would go out into the open fields, and he would preach to tens of thousands, far long before the days of microphones or any kind of vocal amplification. He would preach, and the Spirit of God would fall, and people would be saved. Of course, John Wesley, a very great preacher too, and Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer. But these three guys were best of, the best of friends until John Wesley and George Whitfield had a disagreement on Calvinism. Wesley preached a sermon entitled Free Grace in which he said, everybody who wants to be saved can be saved. He preached it. He printed it. He believed it. And I believe it too. I'm with Wesley on this. George Whitfield, though, was a five-point Calvinist. He didn't believe like that. He didn't believe that. He wouldn't have preached it like that. He would have preached it more from a, from a Calvinistic perspective about, you know, only the elect will be saved. And, 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 and some of these words we, we throw around. But the implication from that is not everybody who wants to be saved can be saved. 
And Wesley looked at that and said, that's not right. Anybody, Jesus said, whosoever will may come. And these two guys disagreed. Their disagreement got so bad that Whitfield wrote a letter to Wesley, a very personal letter on the issue, and he published the letter publicly, shaming Wesley. He, became, he, he felt bad about it, and he, he, wrote another letter to, he wrote a letter to Wesley and said, Though much may be said for my doing it, he wrote apologetically, I am sorry now that any such thing dropped from my pen, and I humbly ask pardon. Ask Wesley to forgive him. And then he added, I find I love you as much as ever, and I pray to God if it would be his blessed will that we may be united together. By late 1740 and 1741, the ice between the two evangelists had melted. That's not to say that they agreed on the doctrine of Calvinism. And by the way, that is a non-essential. That's not the blood atonement and that's not the authority of Scripture. We can disagree if you're visiting tonight on the five points of Calvinism. We don't have to agree on that. And so, they did, and they never did agree on it. Still, when Whitfield died... In 1770, Wesley preached at his funeral and suggested that the two of them had come to a mutual understanding. There are many doctrines of a lesser nature, he said, with regard to which even their sincere, even the sincere children of God are and have been divided for many ages. In these we may think and let think. And here's the phrase and agree to disagree. I think it is universally accepted that John Wesley coined the phrase, agree to disagree, over this issue that he was having with Whitfield. Though their breach was in one sense healed, their ministries forever took different paths. And it explains that more. The two continued a lifelong theological and methodological division, but both remained ever hopeful of a heavenly reconciliation. Shortly after Whitfield's death, one of Wesley's followers asked him whether he thought he would see Whitfield in heaven, a question generally reserved for heretics. His answer demonstrates Wesley's undying love and respect for his longtime friend. No, madam, he replied, George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory, and will stand so near to the throne that one like me, who am less than the least, will never catch a glimpse of him. Now, here are these two men who couldn't come together on Calvinism, but they could come together on Jesus, and they could come together on the Bible. And they said, on that theological issue, we agree to disagree, but Wesley loved and respected Whitfield so much that he said on this occasion, when we get to heaven, he'll be closer to God than I'll be because he was a better Christian than I was. What was, what was Wesley living out? I'll tell you what he's living out. In all things or in the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. We can agree to disagree, but in all things, love. And if we would practice that, life would be a lot easier Conflicts would be a lot fewer, 
and our witness for Christ would shine a lot brighter. Amen? Father, help us to learn to agree to disagree on things that, it's not that they don't matter at all, but they just don't matter as much. They're not the main things. They're not the tenets of our faith. With your head bowed and eyes closed tonight, is there somebody, if you're Yudia, is there a Seneca in your life that you've had a disagreement with and you've allowed that disagreement to break fellowship? Well, if so tonight, Paul would say to you if he were preaching this sermon, I plead with you. I plead with you. Because of your faith in Christ. Because she is your brother. Because he, she is your sister. Because he is your brother. Put that disagreement aside. Agree to disagree. If it's the pandemic, you wear your mask and don't make him wear his. Or You don't wear your mask, but don't criticize her for wearing hers. If it's one of the points of Calvinism, I see where you're coming from. I see it a different way. I, I, I agree to disagree, but I love you. And when we get to heaven, I, I believe like Wesley believed in Whitfield, you'll probably be closer to God than I am. But that's okay because we'll be there together. Father, help us to put this principle into practice tonight. In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you've never been saved, something we must agree on, we must come together on the fact that only Jesus saves. If you want to be saved tonight, pray this prayer. Say, Dear Jesus, forgive my sins. Come into my heart and make me a Christian. Save me, Lord, right now. Save my soul. I ask you to do it. I trust you to do it. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus.